Morning. Morning. I'm going to do something different. Y'all bear with me. Since there's not many of us here, I'm going to preach down here today. That's all right. Everybody good? Not on. Turn my mic on, kid. Number one. You got it. I probably don't need it. All right. Everybody good? Yep. Can you hear me? All right. Well, y'all go ahead and turn to Luke chapter seven. Luke chapter seven. We're gonna wrap up that chapter today, and we're gonna look at uh, love and forgiveness through this chapter. Uh, and it's two things. Love and forgiveness. Two things that always go together, right? Can't have one without the other. It's impossible. So uh, before we get into the text, before we jump in, let's review. So we're in the Gospel of Luke. Who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Luke. 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 That's right. So who is Luke? Physician and historian. That's right. Physician, historian, ministry, commandment of Paul. Who's he writing the Gospel to? Theophilus. Who else? Hmm? Gentiles, that's right. So who is Theophilus? That's right. We don't know for sure. We've got a, I don't know, pretty good idea. Maybe. Chapter 1, verse 3, Luke calls him uh, most excellent. And that was a term at that time that was used, uh, it was a social term. So uh, he could have been a high-ranking government official or something like that. Uh, we know we can, we got a pretty good idea that he was a disciple of Luke's. But uh, Scripture doesn't fully tell us exactly who he is, so we don't know for sure. So what, what's uh, what's Luke's purpose for writing? Luke, what, why did he write the Gospel? To give an account of Jesus' life. That's right, yeah. To give an account of Jesus' life. And, and why else? There was two reasons. It has to do with Theophilus. Because if he's writing... To Theophilus, he has to have a reason for writing to Theophilus. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Excellent. That's right. Chapter 1, verse 4 says he's writing so that Theophilus may be certain and sure that the things he, were, he was being taught was, was true. All right. That's good stuff. Any questions? No? All right. Well, let me, let me, let me start by asking um, how many of y'all... I'm sure most of you do. How many of y'all have a, outside your front door, have a welcome mat? None of you? Okay. Most of you do. Yeah, I do too. Uh, and mine actually says welcome on it. You know, they make them that have different, that say different stuff. Do, do you know, do, does y'all say welcome? Do you know? Ours has our name on it. Has your name on it? Yeah. Ours actually says welcome. Uh, but uh, um, I thought about that this week as I was... As I was studying, and I realized that uh, it, it's really for, for people more than to welcome them into my house. It's really for them to wipe their feet on before they come in. So they don't make my wife mad. You know, we don't want to do that. She's a clean freak. So don't bring don't be bringing no mud into my house. Um, no, really. Um, but do we really welcome everybody into our home? I got the welcome mat out front of our door that says welcome. 
but are we really welcoming everybody into our home? And Kevin admitted this morning, he does. He don't want them ratty little kids down the road in his house. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, if you look at what welcome means, the, the word, is, here's how it's defined, to greet the arrival of a person or guest with pleasure and kind courtesy. So when you think of it in the context of what it means, do we welcome everybody into our house? No, sure we don't. Uh, there are people that, that, that I don't want in my house. And I'm just being honest. There's people that I don't want in my house. So really, the mat's not worded right. It should say welcome, but underneath it in parentheses, maybe. Because there's conditions attached to our welcome, right? There's conditions attached to it. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not. Jesus has conditions attached to his welcome, too, if you, if you don't know. That's what we're going to talk about today. So he welcomes anybody that would cry out to him, right? Anybody that would cry out to him, but they have to come on his terms. So this morning, that's what I want us to look at, is a person who welcomed Jesus into his home, but then we're going to look at another person that was not welcomed by anyone but Jesus. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, let's stand. <clears throat> Honor the reading to God's holy and perfect word. We're going to start in verse 36. Starting in verse 36, Luke writes, No one, or now one, of the Pharisees requesting, was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered at the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing beside him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair, with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously, forg graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who, whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, Lord, we love you. And Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I am so grateful that you have given us your word, given it to us to study, but given it to us, 
so that we may know you. That's what you left it for us for, Lord, so that we may intimately have encounters with you and know you. And so, God, I thank you for that. And, Lord, I pray now for the world. I pray especially for those parts of the world who do not have access to your word. Lord, you have Christians all over the world being killed, being persecuted, being beaten and for, for, for reading your word. They can't own a Bible. They have to secretly pass pages amongst themselves. They can't own a Bible. If they're found with it, they're killed. And so, Lord, we pray for them now. And, Lord, we pray for this country. We take it for granted. We have access to your word. We can own 500 Bibles if we want, and we never pick it up. We take your word for granted. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that we realize what we have access to. We don't just have access to a book with pages and words on it. God, we have access to your very heart and your very mind through your word. Lord, I, I pray we realize that. And if there's any amongst us that takes it for granted, I pray this today they stop. Father, I pray that whatever you have deemed to happen here this morning does happen. If there's any amongst us who, 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 who's come in this house today apart from you, apart from you and part of from a saving knowledge of your son, Lord, I pray that you save them today. I do. God, we love you. We give you all the honor, all the praise, and the one thing you demand above anything else, and that is all the glory. It's in Jesus' holy and beautiful name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, let's set a little context. Um, this text where we're at today, we've kind of been looking at this, this, this section since chapter 4. It all goes together and flows through chapter 9, and... It, it's Jesus' uh, Galilean ministry, all right? And that's the big issue, that today, and the big issue that's dealt with through this whole section from chapter 4 to chapter 9 is who is Jesus, who Jesus is. So in addition, what we see through this, Jesus called the twelve. Back in chapter 4, he called the twelve. And then, as we travel through, we've seen that he's begun displaying um, what it means to be a disciple. All right, he's been fleshing out and, and showing them uh, and living in front of them what it means, what it takes, to be a follower of his and what it takes to be a disciple. In chapter 5, the Pharisees challenged uh, challenged him as to, as to why he was associated with sinners, why was he associated with tax collectors. And uh, that was the same accusation that uh, that was repeated last week. Buffy preached it in verse 34. All right, so we come to our text this week, and uh, this is a little bit different. You're not going to see any notes on the screen, so you're just going to have to take notes best you can because I, I didn't outline the sermon. There's really no outline. I'm just going to go step through it verse by verse. All right? So let's start at verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees were, was requesting to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So if you're, if you're reading this like, a, if you're looking at this and reading this like, it, like it's a movie, then this is a new scene. All right? Jesus is, uh, has been invited over to dinner. Uh, and to die, to die with the Pharisee. And, to, and despite the arguments and the difficulties that he's had with the Pharisees so far, he still accepts this invitation. He still comes. Uh, and so the text says he, he reclined at the table. All right, and that was the normal position for them to eat at that time. 
and their culture. Um, it, 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 if it was a special meal, they would they would sit kind of like on their side uh, with their head towards the table, but they would be like laying on their side, and their feet would come out backwards or behind them, stick out behind them, away from the table. And so, uh, most commentators I, I read this week said that even though Jesus was invited into the Pharisees' home, this this meal uh, was kind of a public thing. Uh, anybody could come. Uh, it, it was, it, you know, and, and people would do that. It, it was a common thing that those that would eat the meal would be the ones invited to the meal, but those, there would be people who would come to hear the speaker or hear the teaching. And that's what Jesus was, the guest of honor. And so they knew he would be speaking or teaching. And so public, you know, people from the public would come. And so that that's why, that kind of explains the reason this woman is here. No one rebuked her presence here. No one said anything or questioned her being there. All right. Verse 37, 38 says, And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. So the woman, uh, she, she gets to the house um, a lot of times the story is referenced, and I saw that this week as I was reading different commentators. A lot of times um, people say that she was a, a prostitute, but the text never says that. It never says that she's a prostitute. As a matter of fact, the exact nature of her sin is not even mentioned. It just describes her as a sinner. So it seems to me that that, that uh, the nature of her sin or her specific sin is not as important as the other facts that Luke gives us. So he outlines her actions step by step here. He points out everything that she does. He says she, she learned Jesus was at the meal. All right, then she goes to the meal. She she goes prepared. She goes with a, with a jar of perfume, in it, and it says alabaster jar of perfume, which would have been the most expensive perfume at that time. All right, she stands behind Jesus, she stands, uh, and as she stands, she weeps, wetting his feet. She wipes his feet with her hair. She kisses his feet. She anoints his feet with the perfume that she brought with her. And so all of her actions here, everything that she does, totally, completely visible to everybody there. And it made for an extremely uncomfortable situation. Wouldn't you say? The folks were very uncomfortable. Look down verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. So while all this action is going on, while she's doing this, we, we, we get a look into the mind of the, of the Pharisee who invited Jesus. And so what he's thinking, pretty revealing. His reaction to what's going on, like I said, it's an uncomfortable situation, Right? So his reaction, at least internally within himself, in his mind, he questioned whether Jesus was a prophet. That suggests, at least in some way, what his intention was for inviting Jesus to begin with. His intention was to judge Jesus. All right? he wanted, it was likely for him, he, he wanted to, to see if Jesus was a prophet. All, this thing, all these things that they'd been hearing about, maybe he even witnessed some of them. He wanted to, to, to judge for himself to see who Jesus was. Look look at verse 39. It says, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman was who's touching him, 
that she's a sinner. So here's his thought process. He says, if Jesus is a prophet, he would not let a sinful woman touch him. But Jesus is letting a sinful woman touch him. So therefore, Jesus is not a prophet. Right? That's his thought process. Jesus' response was he, he was able to see what Simon was thinking, right? He was able to, to see his mind. This shows us, and, and it shows Simon, that his thought process very wrong, right? It's extremely wrong. Jesus does know who this woman is, and he's willing to accept her humility and her devotion, right? Let's keep reading. Look, look at verses 40, 40 to 43. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500, the other owed 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. So Jesus, at this point, turns to Simon. And he uses his name here for the first time. It's the first time the Pharisee's name has been mentioned. And it's also interesting here, too, that, that, that Simon refers to Jesus as teacher. All right? That just affirms to me what he's determined at this point. He determined that Jesus isn't a prophet, so he refers to him as teacher. He uses his title of rabbi or teacher. But what does Jesus do? He didn't get upset. He doesn't get offended. He obliges him because then he proceeds to teach him, right? He tells him this parable, but, but, but what he does is he challenges this thought process. He challenges his thought process and he shows Simon that he's able to see his thoughts, which affirms that he's more than just a teacher, right? I think you're thinking something and then all of a sudden who you're thinking it about tells you what you're thinking or answers the question that you're thinking you're going to get kind of freaked out a little bit, right? That's what he's doing. He's showing him that he can see his thoughts, so he is more than just a prophet. So the parable, um, there's a money lender, two debtors. One debtor has a large debt, 500 denarii, which is the equivalent today of $50,000. The other one, 50 denarii, which would be about $5,000. So you can grasp how much money that was at the time. The... Um, the smaller amount was about two months' wages, almost two months' wages. They, they, they made about one single denarius a day, all right? So 50 would be 50 days' worth, so almost two months' worth of wages. So the larger one would be over a year's wages for, for someone. So both still, they're both a lot of money, right? Even though there was a smaller one and a larger one, they're both still a lot of money. So here's the thing that stands out the most, the, the money lender forgave them both. He didn't forgive one, he forgave them both. And, and that was something that was out of character, totally out of character at that time. It wasn't common for any person, any money lender, to forgive a debt. The word used for, for in here for graciously forgave, that's what it says, he graciously forgave. And, and that has no sense of someone doing anything to deserve the merit. It doesn't, you know, they, these people didn't deserve the forgiveness of the debt that he gave them. And it's the same word that Paul uses in Colossians 2, uh, verse 13. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So it's a picture of grace. It's a picture of grace. 
Jesus ends the parable by, by asking Simon a question. He says, which of them will love him more? And Simon's answer was, uh, was what Jesus was hoping for. He answered, he said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. So the man who is forgiven much will love much, right? Look at the next three verses, 44 to 47. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since... But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he was forgiven. who is forgiven little loves little. So Jesus now turns to the woman, and he asks Simon if he sees her, like he's missed her this whole time. Right? He said, do you see her? Well, yeah, obviously everybody sees her. But it's not until this point in the text that we see Jesus' reaction. This is the first time he reacts to, to, to this woman's actions. He hadn't said anything about her until this point. All right? And so he compares her actions with Simon's actions in three different ways. First way is, is water for his feet. He says, I entered your house, and you, Simon, gave me no water for my feet, but she, sinful woman, has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. All right, the second is a kiss. He said, you, Simon, gave me no kiss, but she, sinful woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. And then oil for the anointing, he said, you, Simon, did not anoint my head with oil, but she, sinful woman, anointed my feet with perfume. Most commentators are in agreement that uh, these things here that Jesus is pointing out that Simon didn't do would have would have been um, at that time a common courtesy for any guest invited or welcomed into your home. That was they would have washed his feet, would have washed the dust off his feet, it would have anointed his head with oil, would have given him a kiss. And so Simon clearly being discourteous to Jesus, right? But in verse 47, Jesus gives him the real lesson that he wants him to learn. He said, for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. So this lesson is two parts. There's two parts that Jesus is teaching. Now look at, look at it. Look at the text. First, he says, he's the, uh, it says the reason that the woman acted the way she has is because her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. This verse is really one that gets taken out of context. To support false doctrine a lot of time. Because if you read it on the surface, it would seem that Jesus could be saying that her many sins have been forgiven because she's shown great love towards him. But that would make her action the basis of his forgiveness. That's not true. It contradicts the parable that he just told. Look at the parable. It says the love comes as a response to the forgiveness. So it it, it, don't, it doesn't just contradict the parable. It contradicts what, what Jesus says in verse 47. He says, He's, he who is forgiven little loves little. So what's the order? Forgiveness, then love. Right? And then when you look at the whole of Scripture, if you take all of Scripture into account, it contradicts that. 
See, we can't base an entire theology off one text. If it were true that this woman's actions motivated Jesus' forgiveness, then that's contradicting the wider testimony of Scripture, right? 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us, right? So we got to understand that her actions are a response to the forgiveness. That's what he says. And the second thing Jesus wants Simon to learn is the one who is forgiven little loves little. And that's a shot right there, to his, right to his gut, right, right to all his pharisaicalness. Is that word? Pharisaicalness? Um, huh? It's a doubt it, but it'll work. It'll work. You know what I'm saying. So what, what, what did they believe? What did the Pharisees believe? They saw themselves as the most righteous people alive, didn't they? He called the woman a sinner. He titled her a sinner like he wasn't a sinner, right? He labeled her as a lawbreaker. But he was righteous in his mind. He was righteous. He was a Pharisee. So he, like the rest of the Pharisees, didn't consider themselves as needing much forgiveness because they were already righteous, right? So Jesus punching him right in the gut with his statement. He says, you're not a sinner. You're a Pharisee. You're not a sinner, right? You're not like this woman. You don't need forgiveness. And as such, one who is forgiven little loves little. So Simon, in his mind, because this is all in his mind, right? These were his thoughts. He hadn't shown any love for the woman. And he's not shown love for Jesus in action, in actual physical action, because he neglected their tradition, their cultural traditions, to welcome a guest into his house. So Jesus' point to him was this woman, this woman right here, She's a lot closer to the grace of God than you are. Now, we don't really know, can't be sure what happened as a result of this meal because he's not mentioned anymore, this particular Pharisee. Simon's not mentioned anymore in Scripture. So we don't really know what his response to all this was. But if I'm guessing, if I'm going out on the limb and I'm guessing, I'd say he likely rejected Jesus. That's what I would say. I could be wrong, and I might find out one day that I am wrong about that, but I say that is looking at the overall picture. The purpose of this section is of responding to God's grace and, and with love and with devotion to him, right? That's what we're seeing from this text. And I'd say after all, after all this, if there's a knowledge of Simon's conversion as a response to this, I would go out on the limb and say Luke would have included that, right? But he didn't. He didn't include it. So there's no mention of his response. It leaves us to wonder. Was he, was he willing to humble himself before God? And maybe he did respond positively to this encounter. And maybe it's admitted for our sake. Maybe Luke admits it for our sake because if we have no knowledge like we don't, we have no knowledge about how he responded, then that should cause us to question our own response and how we would respond, right? What's the outpouring of love from us to everybody else? Do we forgive people that have wronged us? Do we? Or do we hold grudges? That's what might sting some of you a little bit because it stings me, it stung me. We're unable to forgive people who've done us wrong, regardless of whether they come and apologize to us or not. 
if we cannot forgive, have we been forgiven ourselves? That's a tough truth. It is. But look at the very core of it. Look at the very core of what this says. The ability to forgive is the very heart of Christianity. Is it not? It's the mark of a real believer. It's the characteristic of a new nature. Right? Look, and I know how we are. I do. I'm the same way, and I'm preaching to myself. I'm preaching to myself. What do we do when people hurt us? When they treat us bad? When we're outcast? When they talk behind our backs? They run us down to other people? What do we do? When they steal from us? When they when they hurt people that we love? Our response is to hurt them right back. Is it not? We have this get-even mentality. But that ain't love. It's not. We can sit here all day long and we can, we, can, we can talk about forgiveness. We can defend our very own salvation and defend our grudges that we have. I'm going to tell you something. When you begin to put Scripture together, it falls into place. Where's the biggest place that we hold grudges in our lives? Where's the biggest place that we all hold grudges? Most of us. In our homes. With our very own family. In our marriages. That's the very place that we hold grudges the majority of the time. The very place that, that, that grace and forgiveness should be displayed more than anywhere else. But we hold grudges. And I can stand here and give you personal application from my life just this week. I can. And my wife can too. If she's out here, she'd probably say amen. But I don't have to do it. I don't have to do that because there's plenty in your life that you can pull from right now. I guarantee you. How do we treat our spouses? When we get mad at them for something they did or they didn't do, what do we do? We punish them. At least we think we are. We get even in our own way, right? We do something to get even in our own way. We, we withhold from them. We stop talking to them. In some cases, we leave them. Or we say this to them, I forgive you, but I won't forget what you did. I forgive, but I'll never forget. Look, that ain't biblical. That ain't even biblical. That's not an example of love. It's really, look, it's an example of hate. I told you, this, is, this, this, this ain't something we want to hear. It's not easy to hear, but it's what Scripture teaches. Y'all flip to 1 Corinthians 13. Start putting the pieces of Scripture together. The picture that God is displaying to us begins to make perfect sense. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. is not jealous. <clears throat> Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. does not seek its own. is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bear, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So how often do we take this truth here that Paul's telling the Corinthian church? 
and apply it to our own lives. How often in our own marriages and in our relationships do we keep an account of wrongdoings? I know I stood up here and said that, that if you don't forgive and you hold grudges, you might not be saved. But look, I'm just tying the pieces of Scripture together. Paul said love is all these things that we just read. He said love is all these things, right? So if I don't display these things in my life, in my relationships, then can I say I really love? Because the, absent of the, the absence of these traits would be the absence of love. Right? And what's the definition of hate? The absence of love. So the definition of hate is the act. So hate would be the, the opposite of this. It would be impatience, unkindness, jealousy, arrogance, boastfulness, looking out for ourselves only, being easily angered, holding grudges, keeping records of wrongdoing, rejoicing when other people suffer, hating the truth of Scripture when it's taught, and leaving and giving up on people. That's hate. That's hate. And that's the opposite of everything Paul just mentioned right there in 1 Corinthians. So if we don't love, can we say he's ever loved us? 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Or look back at our text today, Luke 7, verse 47. Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. He who loves little is forgiven little. Can you be saved and not be able to display love, patience, kindness, forgiveness? Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Starting in verse 19, Paul wrote to the Galatian church, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and the thing, and things like these which of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let me ask you a question, the same question again. Can you, be dis can you be saved and not display love, patience, kindness, and forgiveness? Yeah, you can. You can. You can be saved and not display those things. But you're not walking in the Spirit. You're not living in the will of God. When you give way to the flesh, you're not walking in the Spirit. You're not living in the will of God. So you can be saved and still fall to the desire follow the desires of your flesh. Everything, verse 19, that we just read in Galatians. But the evidence of your salvation is conviction. You won't stay there. You won't remain there. You can't. He said those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Practicing means ongoing. 
It means continuously ongoing. So if you can hold a grudge against somebody, if you can withhold love, and you can do any of these things in this list as an ongoing, in an ongoing, continuous manner, and you're not troubled by it, you're not convicted by it, the Spirit of God doesn't reside in you. I'm just going to be honest with you. If you can go on continuously holding a grudge against someone for years and years and years, and you're not bothered by it, you're not saved. I'm just going to be honest with you. You can't have the Spirit of God residing in you and have anger and hatred towards someone. Jesus and sin, Jesus and anger, Jesus and hatred cannot coexist. They can't dwell in the same body. Sin and darkness or light and darkness can't dwell in the same body. So if you have hatred for yourself, continue it for someone else continuously. Does the Spirit of God live in you? That's the truth. Evidence of your salvation would be conviction over these things. Let's move on. Verse 48. Verses 48 and 9. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sin? So right here he addresses the woman for the first time. And it really appears that... Possibly, he could be pronouncing forgiveness for the first time. But I don't necessarily think that's the case. See, this is reassurance of a past event. He said, your sins have been forgiven. Not, not that they now are forgiven. And that statement's in the perfect tense, in the, in the Greek, if you look at the grammatical structure, meaning that it's a past-completed action with continuous results. It's a, it doesn't have to be repeated. It's, it's the result of what happened, and it stands for all time. So your sins have been forgiven once and for all. And so this prompts the other guests to question, who, you know, who is this man? That's what they say. Who is this man? And we saw, we saw what Simon thought about him, right? He says Jesus can't be a prophet, and then Jesus displays at least to Simon because he was able to read his mind and prove to him that he was reading what he was thinking, that he's at the very least that. He's at the very least a prophet because he sees what Simon is thinking. But the question there, who is this man, that, that, that points a little bit further than that. If you remember back in chapter 5, <clears throat> verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 21 in Luke, uh, the same question came up. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? So Jesus proves to Simon that he is at least a prophet, but he's not an ordinary prophet. So he's either a liar here or he's more than a prophet, right? See, prophets would speak indirectly of God's word, right? They'd say, thus saith the Lord. So they would speak on behalf of God. But Jesus here is speaking directly as God. He said, your sins are forgiven. Not that, you know, go do this and your sins will be forgiven. He said, your sins are forgiven, in verse 50, in a, in, a, in a final word to the woman, he says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, he points to the fact that her, that her actions are not the cause of the forgiveness. Rather, it's her faith, her trust in Jesus, which again, this here is in perfect tense. It's a past event with results that stand forever, never having to be repeated. So he tells her to go in peace. Go live life. Go have the assurance that God's favor rests on you forever, finally, forever. 
Go in peace from now through eternity. So you've been forgiven much and you're fully forgiven forever. That's what he says to her. And that forgiveness provides peace because really peace can only come. We will never have real peace in our lives until we know what the forgiveness of God is. Right? So what does it teach us? What do we learn from this? Well, here's how I'd summarize this. Just like the Pharisee, just like Simon, we need to realize that there's times where we do extend the invite to Jesus as the honored guest, but then what we do is we treat him with absolutely no reverence at all. We treat him just like another guest. We refuse to sit at his feet. We refuse to worship him. And we refuse to, to disregard what other people think, even people in our own families. We refuse to disregard what they think, and we refuse to openly worship him with our lives. We refuse to humble ourselves, to kiss and to anoint his feet with our words, with our actions, with our lives. Here's the problem. We got the invite mixed up. See, we need to understand that that initial invite is not ours to extend to Jesus. He extended the invite to us. So Simon's invite to Jesus was wrong from the very beginning because Simon's motives and his heart was wrong. The sinful woman understood who Jesus was and what she did. She ran to him. She ran to him. But, but old Simon here, he was hung up on pride and his self-righteousness. And he felt like he extended the invite to Jesus. Matthew 22, for many are called, but few are chosen. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So, so like the sinful woman, we got to come to a place where, <clears throat> where we see Jesus for who he is. And in light of him, realize our need for him. When we realize our need for him, we should be able to worship him with all of our lives, just like she was able to worship him in public. She didn't care that it made everybody uncomfortable. And we'll be able to definitely, positively extend grace and mercy and forgiveness and love to other people, even when it's not deserved. Because do we deserve the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness he gives us? No. See, Jesus, Simon called Jesus teacher. He saw Jesus as a teacher, but the woman knew him as her Lord and Savior. So remember, forgiveness, this forgiveness that he extends <clears throat> to a sinner is, is like no other gift you'll ever get. It's the greatest gift you'll ever get in your entire life. There's no greater debt that can be paid for you at all, ever. So our response should be all out, unadulterated, unashamed love for our Savior and other people. Right? John Hopper said this. He said this little sentence reveals a mammoth truth for us. We will love God to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of God's grace and forgiveness. So the greater the pardon, the deeper the love. Yeah. 
We can't love, show the signs of love, unless we first experience the love of God and His grace and mercy. It's impossible. Impossible. Yes, no, maybe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for being the epitome of love. Lord, you are love. We don't know how to love, God. The only way we know how to love is to first be loved by you. And so, God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done for us. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whoever believed in him will not perish but have eternal life. So you love us, God. You love us so much that you sent your own son to die a death that we, my goodness, I can't imagine what it was like for your wrath to be poured upon Jesus. So God, we thank you for sparing us that. But we've only been spared that if we believe on you. And so, God, my prayer is now that those amongst us today, if there be anyone here who has never experienced your real radical love, I pray today, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you give them the ears to hear the message of the gospel. I pray that happen amongst us today. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We give you all the honor, praise, and glory. It's in Jesus' holy and beautiful name that we pray. Amen. So, I know we're small, not a lot of people here, but I don't really truly know everybody's heart. I don't. So um, let me just say this. Um, I know that this whole Christianity thing is confusing. I mean, we, we, we get confused. There, there's so many what, religions. We see different religions, different denominations, different preachers, and it's hard to determine who's right, what's right. It's enough to make your head spin. Amen. Some of you don't know what to believe. Some of you don't know who to believe. You wonder if you can even believe me, believe the things that I say. You say, why should, I, why should you believe me over anybody else? Let me tell you, don't. Don't believe me. Don't believe me. Don't believe Jimmy. But do believe what the Bible teaches. See, the Word of God is our sole authority. Our sole authority for salvation, eternity, judgment, in everything relating to faith. What about all these different translations and interpretations of the Scripture? What about that? Well, what does that matter? I mean, really, truly, what, what, just ask yourself, what does it have to do with what the Bible really teaches? See, so here's what, here's what the Bible teaches. Here's what the Word of God actually says about us. You're a lawbreaker. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. <coughs> All right, you're a lawbreaker. You're lost. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost, Luke 19. And you're lifeless. You're lifeless. 
Ephesians 2, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. That's what the Bible says about us. So why are you a sinner? Why are you a sinner? The Bible calls you one. So why are you one? Because you were born into this world with a corrupt nature, a sinful corrupt nature. Everybody who's ever lived, lived except Jesus was born that way. They have this sin nature. You're a sinner, so therefore you sin, right? You and I sin not because we fell in Adam, which we did. We did fall in Adam, but we sin because we love it. We choose to sin. In other words, we're sinners by birth. We're sinners by choice. Nobody has to teach any of us to lie. Nobody has to teach us to lie. Nobody has to teach us how to be prideful. Nobody has to teach us how to get angry. They don't have to teach us. It just comes natural, doesn't it? Because we're born that way. So, because we're born that way, we're born sinners. We're born condemned before the holy law of God. We're a transgressor and we're a rebel. And because you're a sinner, Scripture says the wrath of God abides on you. So if you were to die in your natural condition... If you were to die right now as a sinner, you would perish eternally. There's no mercy after death at all. There's no second chance. There's no praying you out of purgatory. That ain't going to happen. You have offended as a sinner the just and holy God by your sin. And your sin, the Bible says, demand judgment. But the wages of sin is what? Death. That's right. And you're going to pay those wages. You're going to pay them. Unless somebody pays them for you. It's in love and mercy. God sent His very Son to this world. And because of God's goodness... He's given to the world a Savior. And Jesus came for the specific purpose of saving sinners. Sinners just like us. 1 Timothy 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's Romans 5. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the best news you're ever going to hear. The best news you're going to hear today, or ever you'll ever hear in your entire life. Jesus came. He did. He came. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. He was buried, but He rose from the grave. And today, He sits in glory. And He sits interceding for His own. And one day he's coming again. One day he's coming again. And when he comes back, he will rule and reign forever. Hmm. Let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you fall into the category of lost, lawbreaker, lifeless, fall at his feet. Confess your sin to him. Repent, trusting that only in Jesus and His precious blood 
would be able to cleanse you and wash you. See, forgiveness and redemption are found only in His blood. That's the only place that they're found. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't ever do enough good to, to deem yourself redeemable. When you go to heaven, you say, God, I hope my good outweighs my bad. You know what he's going to say? Tough luck. You can't earn God's favor, mercy, or redemption. You can't earn it. Why? Because what you deserve is the wrath of God and hell. What every one of us deserves. So what I pray is I pray the Holy Spirit draws you to him today. If you're not never before, come to the Lord. I pray that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself today. And we're going to start this time of invitation now. And I just I just pray that if if if, if he has, that you'll cry out to him. The altar's open, it's always open. If you want to come up here and pray, I pray I, I hope that you, that you would. I'll pray with you. Anybody here will pray with you. If you, if you want to come to the altar and pray, uh, if you want to have a conversation about salvation, if you want to have a conversation about church membership or, or, or baptism, whatever it is, you can respond during, during this time as we, as we all stand. So stand, page 285. <laughs> Supper next Sunday. Uh, I believe that's it. Get a bulletin. There's a lot of stuff in there. Make sure you have one. All right. Well, that's it. Twisday, you pray. Father, we have heard from the Holy Spirit this morning. And I'm not quite sure any of us have understood the gravity of this what we've heard today. Lord, because of grace, you have asserted yourself because your truth has been declared to your people. And oh, how dare we walk out of here and not be broken. It would be rebellious at heart and denying of the truth of the word if we walk out of here and we aren't bothered with it. Again, you've given us grace upon grace and truth that blew us to smithereens 
this morning. And Lord, let not one soul leave this room and not be spilled out. Lord, thank you that you have displayed your love to us first. And because of that, we can grow in our love for you. Lord, help us to love you more, to see you more clearly, to love you more passionately, to desire you more greatly, so that the world may know you, O God. Thank you for this word this morning. Now, may we take it to heart. May we maximize every bit of it. And may we be just like this woman who was broken and spilled out and was so thankful for grace upon grace. God, help us to remember grace and help us to be dominated with grace. We love you. We thank you for your work. In Jesus' sweet name, amen. Amen.